Hey, and welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael. I'm your host. I'm particularly excited about today's episode because I got to sit down and catch up with an old friend of mine, DJ Zor. Uh, DJ is a an accomplished javelina hunter. Uh, so him and I are going to sit down and and uh, to be to be completely honest with you. Uh, we, we go down a lot of a lot of a lot of different uh, rabbit holes, but it was a fun conversation. It went quite long, so so you know, uh, grab a beer, grab a cup of coffee, get comfortable. But this is all about javelina hunting. Javelina season is around the corner. It's next big hunt coming up for a lot of us, uh, and these are a magnificent animal that you know. Unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation uh, floating around about these guys. So we try to clear all that up. We try to give you tips and techniques and how-tos on, on hunting these animals. So I certainly hope it's helpful to you. I uh, hope you learned something, and I hope it inspires you to get out and chase around these, these magnificent animals. This one does go long, so I am going to forego our regular intro um, and our uh, events and volunteer opportunity segments. And I will encourage you, though, to go to the Arizona Outdoor Skills Network. I'll have the link in the show notes and uh, find out all about upcoming events um, that are happening now. Um, I will just say that, you know, there's still a lot of camps going on that are in need of mentors and, and help to put on those camps. So please have a look at the Outdoor Skills Network and get that information. Uh, next podcast, we'll be back to our regular format there. But this one's long, and I don't want to eat up too much of your time. Um, I know you're going to enjoy it, so sit back and learn all about javelina hunting, and we'll see you after the show. All right. Um, I am here with uh, an old friend, uh, DJ, DJ Zorp. DJ, uh, he is, uh, well, I mean, he used to live here in Arizona, and he used to hunt javelina, but now he's in Montana. Um, so let's, uh, let's start DJ by, uh, by just catching up a little bit. Um, you've been gone for what, maybe three years at least, right? Yeah. Like, like three years now, just, yeah, a little more than three, uh, been up here and enjoying the North. Okay. And maybe we should start with you. Why on earth would you want to leave such a, such a cool state as Arizona? Man, I am just not built for the desert. I found out after living there long enough, um, I'm I'm a cold weather critter, and uh, being up here in Northwest Montana, it uh, it's for me. Awesome. Well, we got mountains here too, you know, man. <laughs> you uh, you probably have a little more opportunity uh, regarding hunting up there. I'm guessing, though. Yeah, I uh, I still haven't had a. Uh, I was just gonna say, I still haven't had a, had a bull tag, an archery bull tag. Um, you know, all the time you've been gone, but I'm working on it. Yeah, I'm uh I'm working on it too. I'm uh saving my preference points. I'm I'm a lifetime uh hunting licensee for the state of Arizona. Oh, that was a good move. Um it's it's a solid move for sure. Um so one day I will be back to chase bulls again, but yeah, in the in the time I lived there, um you know, I only drew one really great elk tag and mm. uh up here, uh it's part of your sportsman's package when you buy your tags over the counter every spring. Right on. Um, so the opportunity, the opportunity is pretty great. Um, finding, uh, access and finding the, the elk can be a little bit difficult, but I had, uh, I had a great week chasing bulls. Um, first week of the season here this year, um, you know, spent seven days way back, uh, way back in and, uh, in, in bulls, five out of seven of those days and 
every day I was in bowls, I got within 50 yards. I just could never produce the right opportunity. Um, but I had, had a blast chasing them for, for seven days. Awesome. Well, uh, so for folks that are listening, uh, let me see if I can get this right. Cause I pro- I'll probably screw it up and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, if, if you are a resident in Arizona and, and you're, you decide, Hey, I'm, I'm going to leave, I'm going to move somewhere else, but you want to keep coming back here. Cause it is a beautiful place with a ton of cool opportunity. Um, buying a lifetime hunting and, and fishing license allows you, how does it work? DJ, do you, can you still, you're, you're still going into the resident pool in the draw. Is that correct? Yeah. The, the two benefits for um, someone moving out of Arizona to procure that lifetime Arizona license <clears throat> would be that one, every year that you draw, that you put in for a draw in Arizona, you need to buy a license. So if I were to be uh, a Montana resident and I wanted to hunt elk and I wanted to put in for the fall draw, I'd have to buy a license and then put in for the draw. Right. Now, the way, the way Arizona used to do it, you had to pay up front and then you would get a refund. Mm-hmm. They don't do that anymore because it's all done um, credit card online. But you wouldn't get your you don't get your license refunded if you don't draw the tag. So you'd still have to okay. buy your non-resident hunting license. Then the the other so ha- having that license for the rest of my life, I never have to buy another Arizona annual license to put in for the Arizona draw. Okay, um, that's benefit benefit one. And then benefit two is as a lifetime Arizona hunting licensee you go into the resident pool for all of your applications. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think Arizona is 80, 20 resident, non-residents. Every, every state does it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Some states um, are capped at a number. There will be this many elk permits, this many deer permits for non-residents and the rest will be for residents. Some is on a percentage scale. Um, everybody handles it a little bit differently in Arizona. I, think don't quote me on this but i think it's 80 20 does that sound right i think it sounds right so every every time that i put in for uh elk and antelope and bighorn sheep i go in with that 80 percent resident pool right that that's awesome that, that's a real benefit to anybody that leaves the state i mean it's a good idea to buy your lifetime license whether you leave or not but yeah you save money either, either way you save money in the long run right um yeah i haven't done uh, it yet you know um, there's always something to spend money on there's some new toy i want and something always gets in the way right right and i i never drew an arizona pronghorn tag yeah um so i have i have a lot of bonus points and lately i've just been putting in for points i haven't been um i just haven't had the time that that i know i could dedicate to um to making the trip down there. So I've just been building points lately. Right. Yeah. That's a heck of a tag. Um, I got into the game here in Arizona too late. Um, you know, uh, moving here from the Midwest and I, I don't know that I'll, you know, I always put in for everything and I collect points on everything, but yeah, probably I'm never going to hit that sheep. Never going to hit that pronghorn likely anyway. But with that said, my little boy is now 10, so I can start living vicariously through him and, and getting him going right from the start. Right. So hopefully he has those opportunities as he gets a little older. Yeah. I'm, I'm really hoping that before I'm dead, I draw a desert bighorn sheep tag, um, a, a oh, sheep tag I hope you do too, man. and a mountain goat tag. Those would be, you know, my, my two yeah. kind of dream experiences. What are your odds of getting a sheep tag up in Montana? Um, about as good, maybe a little bit better for, for Rocky mountain bighorn, um, up here. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely 
uh, putting in for that. And then there's there's a there's an over-the-counter unit um, for bighorn sheep, actually a, a small handful of over-the-counter units. Yeah, I've heard about it. Here's a really tough hunt. It's super tough. It's a quota, usually around the oh. number of four or so, depending right. on which unit it is. Um, and once those tags are punched, um, everybody else is off the mountain. And it's right. Yeah. It's tough stuff. I, I don't know if you've heard, but we've gone to that for our archery deer hunts here in Arizona. I know there's been a lot of shakeup. I've been, I've been following from a distance and, uh, yeah, there's things have changed a lot since, um, since 15 years ago. That's for sure. Right. Have you been chasing that over the counter sheep? I haven't been. No, that's, that's another one where you really need to have all your ducks in a row. Um, you got to be in shape. And you need to be ready for a suffer fest, and right. and you need to. I'd say you you're not going to do it in a four day like a long weekend kind of deal. That's a um, right. I'd say dedicate ten days to that, and a lot of lot of planning. Yeah, I'm sure it'd be beneficial to live close to that range. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, plus a day driving out there and a day driving back, but also a lot a lot of planning, a lot of pre scouting, um, and then really knowing that country and knowing those hills. Um, not just where right. the sheep are, but for your safety, how to navigate that terrain, um, and keep yourself out of trouble in there. Cause it's, it's yeah big country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This doesn't compare, um, DJ. I mean, it, it compares a little bit, but did, uh, did you, did you see that I found Chucker in Arizona? I know that there are some there. I haven't seen any of your pictures of them. Um, I know, oh, I know there's it was a, a tough hunt, man. couple of pockets of them. And once again, that's no joke. Yeah. Yeah, I, I it took three years going after him to finally seal the deal and shoot a couple birds, but it was fun. You know, it's like one of those things that I would not have explored that country probably otherwise. So to, to have an opportunity to go chasing something like that just takes you to cool new places. That's the best part about the whole game of hunting is that it drives you into places you, you have no reason to be if you don't have a tag in your pocket or an opportunity mm -hmm. to do it. Um, where yeah. where I was lucky enough to chase elk in Arizona um the all of those experiences filling a tag or not filling a tag none of the fun that i had would have happened without that piece of opportunity right. in my pocket you know that that piece of paper that represents experience um i don't know there's got to be a drive in order to make the drive out there you know right yeah yeah i had the same experience when i was chasing around reptiles and amphibians uh for for a lot of years i mean i've been to it, it, not just in this country i mean i've been all over this country you know looking for a particular salamander or a particular snake and and it takes you to places you would never think of going you know i remember finding myself at this like like shack that sold sold oysters this oyster bar in, in louisiana um in the middle of nowhere just because i happened across and i had the best time hanging out with the owner and eating oysters and drinking beer all night um and that that that's just here you know mexico uh, central america south america you know the places i've got to see and the people i've met just because i was chasing some random critter um it's i don't know i live for this stuff um absolutely yeah and i'll never get tired of it i'll do it till i till the day i die i hope to too definitely cheers to that yeah all right well so i know dj um i met dj through arizona backcountry hunters and anglers um and dj at the time was the vice chair for the organization a position that i'm holding now actually awesome congratulations yeah yeah, yeah thanks probably doing a way better job than i was oh man i'm always feeling guilty that i need to be doing more but uh 
you know, a grown up life. And, and, you know, I work full time in conservation too, which is nice because, you know, sometimes I can double dip, you know, the For area sure. between my volunteer and my work uh, gets a little blurred and that, that's a nice problem to have. But, uh, uh, but no, I love it. Um, I love that organization. I love that group of guys, you know, most of them as well. Uh, but are you still involved with BHA? Yeah, I am still involved with that country hunters and anglers. Um, right after I left Arizona, um, summer of 2020 backcountry hunters and anglers nationally started the armed forces initiative. Um, and I, I jumped on that as soon as I heard it was coming into an, into existence. Um, so now we've got, um, we've got installation clubs all over the country. Um, we've got state liaisons, uh, kind of a go between, um, between the armed forces initiative and the state chapter to kind of coordinate events. Um, kind of like what Wolf was doing in Arizona with the collegiate club. Um, so we've, we've got a, a military kind of liaison between whether it be uh, an active duty installation like what's going on down at Fort Huachuca um, or with just the, the veteran population that's involved in BHA and specific veterans opportunities um, and the state chapter. And, um, and we've got an advisory board now nationally um, where it's a, it's a group of us um, who are really trying to drive the program um, and, and keep, well, keep us on track and continue to build the foundation and then, and then really drive this program. Um, and the sky's gonna be the limit. So I, I act as the uh, treasurer for that national advisory board for armed forces initiative. Awesome, man. That's important work. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm I'm passionate about it. It, it combines a couple of things I'm passionate about, so it's uh, it's an awesome opportunity. Right on. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you're happy out there, man. Um, I mean, it would be it would be awesome to still have you back here in Arizona, but uh, but yeah, you're doing cool things up there, and, and you know nobody's gonna deny it's it's an amazing place to live. So so congrats on that. Yeah, man. I like from work. I look back into the Bob Marshall Wilderness. I can't really complain. Oh. It's one of my favorite places on earth. Uh, yeah, I, I got to hike through the scapegoat and the Bob uh, years ago, and golly, what what an amazing, amazing wilderness. Yep, yeah, it's uh, like once again, that's big country, man. It is, kind of yeah. Stuff that'll swallow you whole. It, it's you can't hardly find a place to camp that's not within eyesight of some kind of grizzly sign, whether it be a marred up tree or ripped up logs, or I mean, this is true. And it, it can be kind of spooky being back there solo sometimes too. It can kind of can. kind of get get in your head um, when you're in big bear country. You know, when when I was there, I was I was hiking so hard that when I slept at night, I mean, I was just dead asleep, and I'd been sleeping on the ground for months, so it was very comfortable for me. But I do remember like waking up in the middle of the night, you know, shoved inside of a mummy bag and, and wondering, oh, shit, what, what, what woke me up, you know? And, uh, but I'd be so tired. I'd just go right back to sleep. But, but with the thought of, you know, I might get eaten by a bear tonight. Luckily, well, I mean, I don't know, luckily, unluckily, you can, you can look at it through a bunch of lenses, but we've been pretty fortunate that the, um, we don't have a lot of human bear interface or, or issues. Um, but I think, I don't know, depending on who you talk to and what their baseline is, it, it maybe it's becoming more prevalent. Um, I mean, we had a, we had a grizzly bear in our backyard tear up our chicken coop this summer. Um, oh, wow. Which was, wow. yeah. Uh, it, 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 crazily, I'm jealous of that. Um, it, well, it's, I don't know, it's, it's maybe a little bit unnerving because typically they're not down here in, um, 
I kind of live in a rural area south of Columbia Falls, um, but it's re it's really a lot of agricultural land around me. Um, not a lot of good terrain for a bear to move through unnoticed. So we get black bears, but we haven't had a lot of grizzly bears. Um, and there's really nothing for them down here unless they get into someone's apple orchard. Um, but the, the berry crop was really low this year. And so in the summertime, they were getting hungry and kind of coming out of their normal hunts and uh, causing some, some conflicts down here in town. Yeah. Well, there was that uh, bicyclist that was uh, killed a few years back by a post office. Yeah, in, in Ovando, two summers ago, I think. Um, that was, and I don't want to speak like an expert on it, but from my understanding, there was some, some food in a tent um, and some some uh maybe not the best bear behavior kind of going on in that situation but also it was right next to the post office in town um in ovando so that's uh you know where there's there's already a lot of human activity and all right. that yeah um so maybe, maybe you're not on your best behavior and and on guard like you're in bear country all the time you know right but i, yeah. I wasn't there so it's, it's a tough thing to, to just speculate on of course. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't want to come across the, the, trying to sound like an expert either, but I've been reading the late Dave Brown's um, Southwestern Grizzly books. He, he's got a couple of them. Mm -hmm. And I guess for one, uh, you know, by reading these stories and these accounts of grizzlies, um, it, there's all kinds of just, you know, ex extreme stories of in, in every situation. These these men were, were trying to kill the bear. Uh, but, you know in a lot of cases, the bear ended up with one of these guys and tearing them apart. Uh, just tons of stories like that. But I think that the crutch of it was that when, you know, people were first settling Arizona, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm right at the base of Sickerigs mountain. There were grizzlies here. There's grizzlies in the peaks, you know, there's grizzlies in pretty much all the yeah. mountains and canyons around our state. But, um, uh, I've lost my train of thought here. So I guess the idea was when they first, those first stories, you know, they were finding bears out in the, you know, middle of big open areas. You know, they weren't necessarily sticking to the mountains and sticking to the canyons. Sure. Um, and they're out in the middle of the day. So it was, it was people coming in and putting that pressure on them, you know, whether that be good or whether that be bad that caused these bears to move into the mountains, um, or at least the ones that weren't already there, um, and become more nocturnal and much more fearful of men. Um, and you know, I mean, you can look at that as a good thing with all the people that are on the landscape right now, you know, it allows us to have grizzlies, you know, and, and exist with them, I suppose. But, uh, but yeah, you know, in the, in the case up there, people aren't hunting, hunting grizzlies. Um, and, and who knows, you know, again, I, like you said, I don't want to come across like, I think I know what I'm talking about, but, uh, you know, without that pressure on those bears, those bears are probably going to get more brazen. I know that we do have all kinds of hazing techniques, but, um, yeah. No, I think about that all the time. And like, this is total speculation, but if you, if you think about like man's existence with bear, like pre-Columbian or pre-colonization, whatever you want to say, um, there's always been competition between man and bear, right? Uh, either for, I'm, I, you know, need to protect your, yourself and your family from the other gigantic apex predator, mm -hmm. or you're, you're in comp, you're in direct competition for me. Right. Um, so we've always had a competitive and protective interface with this species throughout time. And then we nearly drive them to extinction. 
and then decide to bring them back and give this creature kind of every luxury and advantage on the landscape to the point where our behavior is no longer in competition with theirs Mm -hmm. and is that changing um is that changing behaviors and is is our baseline of you know what what is your and my relationship with the grizzly bear compared to what should it be historically right when when the when the brown bear was a plains creature elk were everywhere from the rocky mountains to north carolina um and the the landscape was completely different because we we only get this lens of what do we have today um which is very unnatural from what this wilderness was before we you know started staking out 40s and feeding the world i uh i I really want to do a southwestern grizzly podcast but you know dave brown was the expert and unfortunately we've lost him um and i don't know who else to hit up uh but they fascinate me i don't know nau well you know would be place to look that'd be my start is is start start you know, digging around there and then, yeah, looking for old timers um, and anybody, anybody who may have first or at least secondhand experience with these stories. Yeah. Well, um, I'll tell you what, we're supposed to be talking about uh, a somewhat smaller and less dangerous honorary and temperamental critter. So uh, let's, let's move on. Have Linus. Uh, but they can be honorary and temperamental for sure. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they can. Um, but not, not, I, you know, I, I don't want to call them dangerous. I think, uh, let, let's start with that. Let's talk about Havelina and, and some of the misrepresentations. Um, you know, people do think they're, they're mean and aggressive and, you know, they're, they're not, they're, they're protective of themselves. Um, you know, especially For when sure. it comes to dogs and things like that. In fact, I would say that's the only time I worry about Havelina is when I'm running my dog, Edward, uh, in the field. I have buddies whose dogs have been bit up. Edward has come running back to me with a trail of Havelinas right on his tail. Um, so, so that, that I think that is a real, uh, danger and, and something to be concerned and, and, and wary of but interesting but i think as a general rule these animals do you is there is there a stat out there on um number of dogs injured or number of dogs killed by javelina you know i have no idea that would be a very interesting statistic though huh same same with rattlesnake bites that's another animal that i don't worry about but i worry about with my dog oh definitely i'm I'm with you 100 percent there but you know all the time hunting with ranger down um down towards mexico Uh um chasing up merns and scaled quail I never once really considered Havelina a threat with Ranger, mm-hmm. um, but I've never, and, and you know, we never really had an incident either, um, but that one was never on my mind. Snakes always were, yeah, um, but not Havelina. Well, snakes and, and cats too, a bad, bad incident with a cat um, is, you know, just because of the bird dog's nature to stand still right. and allow a cat a chance to pounce. Yeah. Yeah. A buddy of mine's, uh, GSP pointed a lion, um, underneath, uh, a spruce up on the Kaibab. Um, and, and, you know, he walked in there thinking he's going to flush a, a, a grouse and he flushed a lion instead. Did the lion go up the spruce? No, I think the lion just took off running. Uh, you know, I mean, this is second, second. Sure. Info here, sure. But that's the story as I got it. But, uh, Edwards pointed at Havelina uh, down in uh, Sulphur Springs Valley. I thought I was going in to kick up a covey of quail, and nothing <laughs> moved. And I started looking in the bush, and I could I could see something, but it's like the the the, the brain just wasn't connecting what I was looking at to what I expected to see. They're so hard to see. 
Yeah, but a big old boar javelina came tearing out of there, and he ran across that open plane, and it was just like a, like a, an old Looney Tunes cartoon. You could see like puffs of dust going off into the distance as he ran. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, fortunately he was alone though. Like I said, I have had Edward come back with javelina chasing him, but fortunately he he ran back. But another friend of mine, um, you know Nate from Trout Unlimited, yeah, his dog got chewed up by him. Ooh, and um, unfortunately uh, his dog now has a vendetta against them so he's not scared of them he wants to fight them now so that makes the situation even a little bit worse i think yeah yeah and i would i mean i don't know i just i don't really consider him a threat and i understand especially if you had a small dog you know maybe if you're like um on the on the outskirts of town out in like apache junction or mesa or or out outskirts of tucson um green valley or something like that and you had like a, a small dog or maybe i'd be a little bit concerned there especially um if there was a food source in your yard that the javelina were interested in um and you had a dog i'd say that's maybe maybe a recipe for disaster but otherwise sure and and when they have uh when they have reds with them too for sure they do get protective yeah and red is a baby javelina and they're cute right oh they're man they're adorable yeah i mean javelina are not the most attractive critters on the landscape i wouldn't say but the reds like they're cute undeniably so to clarify um i i think this uh this mis misunderstanding of them being aggressive comes with a, come, a couple things one you know that they have terrible eyesight and probably hearing I, I mean i'm guessing here but i would guess similar to ours but terrible eyesight great sense of smell so if they're downwind from you it's surprisingly easy to get close to Havelina and they will get close to you. So they'll come right towards you and, and maybe not even realize you're, you're the threat they're trying to get away from. And if they are trying to get away from a threat, you know, they saw, saw your dog or, or something and they get their hackles up and they get all, you know, crazy and they're running around. They might run right up to you because they don't see very well. So I think people mis- misconstrue that as, as aggressive behavior when it's really not. Yeah. They just like, it just turns into a circus once they get spooked and they don't really know which way to go until one of them decides I'm going to strike off this way and their safety that way. Then the rest of them follow. Yeah. But for for Uh a couple of minutes there or, you know, 30 seconds or so it can be uh, just a circus. Well, and yeah, we'll talk about more about that too. When when we talk about hunting techniques and calling, because that can be pretty exciting. Um, another, uh, misconception that I come across a lot, and this, this one is a real pet peeve of mine, uh, because I hear a lot of like forest employees, park employees, naturalists, just, you know, saying this over and over again, hell there's books, kids books written about this. And that's saying Havelina is not a pig when the fact of the matter is they are a pig. They're a new world pig. Right. Um, you know, their, their evolution, they, oh man, I'm going to screw this up. So take this with a grain of salt. I get this wrong every time. Too. I think I know where you're going and I get this wrong too. And then I got to like, I got to get on Google and look up the, the Linnaean name yeah. and, and trace it all back to put the pieces together. So it's, uh, it's, let's see. Oh gosh. Um, test test. Oh, I'm going to mess it up. Havelina is the family is Tessua, Day. Yes. And I think so. European farm pigs is Suidae. So it just, you know, using nomenclature as a relationship um, measure, they're very, very close related. You know, they, they both, the old world pigs and new world pigs share a very close common ancestor. Um, and they were both apparently came to the new world, um, as in the Americas, at the same time. 
But for whatever reason, the old world pigs didn't make it here, but they continued on in force in, uh, in the old world, in, in European countries. Um, and of course, our, our peccaries, javelinas, two, two different common names, they, uh, they, they did well here, um, and we still have them here today. So, but they are very closely related, um, and I've heard people tell me they're more closely related to goats. I've heard people tell me they're rodents, um, you know, and uh, this stuff drives me crazy. I mean, look at them, you know, they're, <laughs> they're an even-toed hooved animal. They have a snout. I mean, they're a pig, you know? Yeah, they, well, they, they don't have a tail. They have a pig's kind of snout. Um, they have canines. Yeah. Um, so they're just, I don't know, they're, and, and they're also, they're kind of their own <laughs> unique special critter. Uh, and there's more peccaries. There's more variety of peccary in Central and South America, if I'm not mistaken. And we have the collared peccary in North America. You're absolutely correct. Uh, two to three other species. Are one to two other species. So we have we have the collared peccary. That same species exists at least all the way down through through Central America. Um, but then you also have the white-lipped peccary, which is a little bit larger, and runs. And and you did another uh, clarifying term: um, a herd or a group of of peccary or javelina is called a squadron. Um, but down there they run and I love knowing that cause I think it's a cool name and, and, you know, it's always nice to know something that everybody else knows, but, um, it's catching on though, but the squadrons down there of the white lip apparently run in like the hundreds of animals. I think I've seen a video of it, like in some agriculture land in South America. And there's just mm -hmm. like this, this herd moves across like miniature bison and they're just like, it just keeps going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was hiking across the Osa Peninsula, which is the largest primary rainforest in, in Central America, um, and I backpacked across it. And at one point going across this, I, I was on a trail, and I had, you know, I mean, I guess the collared pickeries run in big squadrons there, too, because I had probably 25 on one side of the trail and, and 50 on the other. And they were all trying to go one one direction. And the 25 that got, and I, I split them off. I, um and the, the 25 that were trying to go the direction as the other 50, they were visibly upset um, that I was in their way. And you know how they'll snap those snap those yeah. tusks and make yeah. that noise? It's intimidating, man, especially when you're in a giant jungle, you know, by yourself. Um, and there was a bunch of those critters. But, you know, it, it was all show. Um, and uh, we all we all worked it out. But, um, but it, I'm not going to lie. I was a little scared. It, it, that many, definitely, man. I don't blame you. Well, there's another misconception, but we'll get to that uh, later. And that is that these things are not fit for human consumption. And that's probably the, uh, you know, I said the last one was a pet peeve, but this one bothers me more than anything. But we'll get to more, that later. Well, I was just going to say, I, I'd say that that's the most offensive uh, to me misnomer about them. Um, and, the, and the fact that um, so, so much of them gets wasted all the time. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's take that opportunity to say that, you know, when, when thinking about doing a podcast on javelina hunting and, and, you know, in full disclosure, I, they're one of my favorite critters to chase and eat. Um, I just love them. I would rather watch a squadron javelina all day than, than a herd of deer. They're just interesting animals. Um, but when thinking about doing this podcast, I was trying to think of who to do it with. And, you know, there's a lot of people that pride themselves on, on, you know, hunting giant mule deer, giant elk, you know, there's a lot of people that stand out in those arenas. Um, but not so much with Havelina. So I was like, man, who is the guy? And there is one thing that sets DJ apart from the rest of the Havelina hunters. And that, that is, uh, the fact that he, 
he he ran a limited a run of eat more javelina bumper stickers um and he used them as an opportunity <laughs> to raise raise funds for varying conservation organizations so th so that set you above the fray dj as far as javelina hunters in my opinion anyway i'm i'm glad i'm glad that that's what sets me apart that was like a, a bad idea super late at night <laughs> and i ran it by a a close friend of mine who runs a, like a small design and printing company. Uh -huh. and he was like, yes, let's, we're, we're doing it. It's going to happen. So he donated the stickers and hopefully there are pickup trucks all over the United States now with a bumper sticker on the back end that says eat more javelina. Well, in, in full disclosure, man, I wish you'd do another run cause I don't have mine anymore. Um, I did have it on the truck for a while. And, but then I, I lived, it was a wonderful neighborhood with wonderful neighbors, but I'm telling you, man, most of them were, were vegetarian or vegan. So after I had on there a while, I'm like, you know, these people are my friends. I like them. Nobody's giving me trouble about it, but I'm like, am I like just rubbing it in their face? You know? So I decided to take it off the truck and I slapped it on my washing machine and that's where it lived for years after. But unfortunately we eventually moved and the washing machine stayed. So, so I don't have one anymore. Interesting side note, my buddy who designed and printed the stickers for me is a vegetarian. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. That's great. I, I love that stuff, man, because, you know, one, one of my best friends back in Tempe is a vegan, um, you know, and, and he's just wonderfully supportive of what I do. So, I, you know, that that gap doesn't always have to be there, you know. No, it, it definitely doesn't. All right. So let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts of javelina and javelina hunting. Uh, we talked about a few of the misconceptions. Uh, let's, let's talk about where, where you find these these critters. And, you know, of course, that's across a variety of habitats uh, here, here in Arizona. But it's it's typically going to be not in the mountains, even though I hear that we have a few up here um, and there's some over the counter tags. I believe I haven't figured that one out, but, but I'm going to work on it. I have seen them. I've seen them at 8000 feet. Have you? All right. Well, I'm living. I have. Yeah, all right. I'm living about there. Not far from not far from where you're living right now. Yeah. Okay. In the summertime, I've seen them at 8,000 feet. I've also heard of big storms coming through up here. Um, like like one fellow I know that works for a wildlife control company, he got a call and a whole squadron got in somebody's shed just trying to seek shelter um, and all froze to death. So he had a, a, a pile of frozen avelinas in his shed. Ooh. Yeah. Yikes. So I'm assuming that's a limiting factor on, on their distribution is, is cold. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not set up for it. They're thin-haired, you know. No. They don't have the hide nor the hair or the under fur to support that for sure. Yep. Yep. So, you know, you're, you're primarily, you know, your, your Sonoran desert, uh, habitats, your, uh, desert grassland habitats, places like that. Um, can you think of anything that I'm leaving out that it's like primary javelina habitat? No. I mean, I would say if you're finding quail, any one of Arizona's three subspecies. That's a very good way to put it. If, if, if you're in quail, you're in javelina country. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely correct. And I'd say that the higher ranges that you're in Mern's quail, you're going to be in Havelina country in the summertime. And once that snow starts falling, I wouldn't expect them to be, I'd expect them to be moving down lower into the desert and, and avoiding, you know, if they're, if they're hanging on a sky island range or something like that, um, just, just due to their, the nature of their coat um, and just not being cold weather hardy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like we mentioned before, you know, the, these animals, they, they run in squadrons, um, uh, you know, typically groups, not that you can't find them individually or, you know, in twos or threes, but as a general rule, they run in a group and, you know, it, it's the, the, the are not hard to hunt are hard to approach. 
um, if you can find them. But finding them is the, the ticket. Um, now, they have high home fidelity. So if you do find them, the good news is the more squadrons you find throughout your, your hunting career in our state, the more different places you find them, the better off you're going to be in the future because you can go back to those places and more likely than not find them again. Has that been your experience? And Yeah, and pinpoint that place. Yep. Save not the area, not the region. Pinpoint that place. What, like, what ridge did you see them from? Mm -hmm. Get back on that ridge the next year. Don't, don't go a quarter mile away from that ridge. Get back to that ridge and stick it out for a couple of days. Because in, in my experience, I don't see them in the same place at the same time day to day, yeah. or at least not the same squadron of mm -hmm. them, same, same, same time, same place day to day. Right. But over the course of three or four days, that squadron will be back at that same time in that exact yeah. same place. So if you're, if you're in really good sign um, and you're not seeing them, wait it out, find a place to park, grab some shade and just keep your eyes, just stay, stay on the alert and they're going to come through there eventually if there is fresh sign. Yep. Yep. So I, I refer to that as like the, those spots where, I mean, you're just in the middle of sign everywhere is kind of like their bedroom. Um, and mm -hmm. when you find those bedrooms, you're going to know it. There's tracks, there's, there's scat and they use latrines. There'll be a one area that just loaded up with scat. Um, and there's, there's torn up yucca, torn up prickly pears. Um, and just when you find that spot, you know, it, you know, you you're on them. Um, now I will say that in, in my experience, I've seen those, those bedrooms change um, over the course of a year. And let's see my little boy and I, we've gone back and we've the last four years, we've taken a javelina out of the same squadron consecutively for four years. Now we have that same tag again this year. Um, but where I found a bedroom on the first year has changed. It, it's not there anymore. It, they're still in the same area, but it's went to a different spot. But conversely, I have another friend who hunts them and, and you know, he's got his spot, but he's got a little cave. And they're in this cave every single year. Now he doesn't put too much pressure on that exact cave because he doesn't want to, you know, change behavior. But he's got video, you know, I'm just coming out of this little hole in the ground in the evenings. It's pretty amazing. I'm jealous of the spot. Definitely, yeah. In so where I hunted them in '37, and that's kind of where I started hunting javelina. Um, year after year after year, consecutively, um, I killed a javelina in the same canyon. Um, it sometimes from the exact same vantage point, um, year after year after year. And then I guess, uh, kind of bouncing around into the twenties, the, the unit it, units in the twenties in Arizona. Um, and I guess I, I never had that experience in another unit where they were in the exact, exact same spot. So, um, I'm with you there that there, you know, it might not be the same bedroom year after year, but that squadron is going to be in the neighborhood. They're going to be close by. Yeah. Yep. That, that's been my experience. So I, I guess the advice for a, a, a new javelina hunter, somebody that's thinking about it is, uh, burn some boot leather, um, carry good glass, um, cover a lot of country until you find them. And if, it's not going to be easy. I mean, it's not always easy to find javelina. Again, that is the hardest part of the hunt. 
but they're out there. And, and if you put in the time and you, you put in the hiking, you're going to find them eventually. And I don't even think it's, it's just finding them or finding the right spot. I think you can be in Havelina and have no idea because you don't have a sight picture for what they look like in the desert. Right. I took my, I, I took my uncle and his good buddy out one year. And, um, this is, this is one of my spots down in 37 and there were Havelina coming up the Canyon wall towards the kind of the little saddle we were seated in to glass. And I saw him from maybe 125 yards away with the naked eye and I put binos on him and sure here they are coming up and they're just marching right towards us. They have no idea we're there. And I, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, I can count you know, 15 individuals and I cannot get my uncle or his buddy to see them, to see them. and they're I plain yeah. as day and they just, they don't look like something that you should see. <laughs> they, they look like little boulders rolling around or, or a barrel cactus that right. somehow grew well, yeah. for tiny little legs. And then you get them in profile and they're as thick as a sheet of paper. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's amazing how they disappear and appear on a landscape when you're looking at a whole group on a hillside. Yeah, it talk about, I mean, and they're, I mean, you, you look at one against a white background and you're like, how could I not see this thing? And then you get them out there in the desert and they just, they become a shadow. Right. Um, I mean, talk about natural camouflage. They have that dialed. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, I, I took one uh, down in the border country a couple of years back and I had hunted hard uh, for two long weekends trying to find pigs. Um, and finally the last day, like literally it's, so what had happened is, you know, my, my old white Tacoma, right? It's a, mm -hmm. it's an old truck, but I'd gone through some, uh, deep crossings. You know, we'd had a lot of, a lot of rain that winter and one of my headlights went out. Actually, I think both of my headlights went out. Yeah. Both of my headlights went out. So I'm like, all right, I've got to get home before dark back. I was living in Phoenix at the time before the sun sets, you know, so I, so I can be there and make it to work. Um, and so and like everything I do, I, I push, I push the agenda, right. And <laughs> I'm hiking and I'm up and down these ridges glassing, and I'm thinking, all right, I got to go now, but man, I'm just going to go to that next ridge. Just that'll be the last ridge, you know? And I, I get up there. I just got to see what's like, I don't know what's on the other side uh, of it. I just got to get up there and peek over. Man, I struggle with that my whole life. It's exactly the same country I'm in right now, but I have to see it. <laughs> Um, sure enough, I find a javelina. I find one individual javelina and he's got to be 500 yards, you know, down and across. Um, and I'm looking at the clock. There's no way I can pull this off, but I do it anyway. Um, and I, I get within a hundred yards. Um, you know, I have a scope rifle, so not, not a bad, uh, distance there. Um, and, and I, I shoot that pig. Um, and when I shoot that pig, the entire freaking hillside comes alive with javelinas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where in the hell did they come from? You know, um, but they're not so spooked. They leave the country. Then as I'm walking up close, I mean, I walk literally all, all right up to all of these javelinas without them even recognizing me. Um, and there are pigs everywhere. And I never saw any of them. That's what I'm um, saying. I think that man. happens it's to it. a lot of people archery hunting them on stocks too. You're trying to get within archery range and you don't see the other ones and you end up bumping them. Right. Or, or you're stalking one and you know exactly where that one is and you move vantage points, you get 20 yards closer and you can't see it anymore. Disappears. Yeah. So it's, it is definitely, um, 
it, it's it's definitely a case of natural camouflage and you really have to get a good sight picture and then once you once you pick them up and your your eyes you know are trained on what to look for then you see them by the hundred you know but you start seeing other things though too you like those barrel cactuses you mentioned earlier we call those jalos uh, for javelina like object and those <laughs> jalos are all over the landscape i've got them here man i see burnt out bear stumps and, um, you know, bush deer, rock deer, uh, all of those things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, all of that stuff, the fact that these animals are approachable, but still challenging in all these other ways, I think makes them one of the funnest game animals on the landscape. Hands Definitely. Down. I just love them. And I mean, what else are you going to do in January and February? Right. Right. No, it's perfect. You know, uh, we're right now we're talking what mid December, I think, uh, you know, all the elk hunts are over, I believe. Uh, there might be some uh, some coos deer hunts going on right now. Uh, and, of course, we have late archery over the counter coming up here. But other than that, you know, I mean, we've got some squirrel going on and some quail, but there's not much else happening. Um, and so it's a, it's a hunt I look forward to every year. And, and now living up here, I enjoy it even more because it gives me a chance to get that back down in the desert and in the, in the warm weather, you know, after a long winter here. Definitely. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's not the thing, like you said, there's nobody who's like the self-proclaimed expert or anything, or the person who's just like driven to go after monster javelina, but it's such an off-season fun thing to do and a reason to get out there. Uh, it should it should not yeah. be passed up. Sure. All right. Well, I do know of one person, um, our, our, our president of the Arizona Wildlife Federation, Glenn Dickens. He has not killed a javelina in years. And that's because he's holding out for a record book javelina. That's what he wants. And, you know, apparently, apparently those he, big ones. He wants what? A record book that'll go in the Arizona uh, Records of Big Game book. Uh, okay. So he, he's okay. Hold, holding out for a giant. But, and apparently those giants come from uh, southeast Arizona, down in some of that uh, agricultural land. I can see that. Is that. So is that based on a skull measurement? Yes, it is. Okay. Yep. Um, hey, let's talk about some of the opportunities here, uh, like the the general, the archery, and the ham. Okay. So general, obviously, um, is is your rifle hunts. I think you can still use archery equipment, muzzleloader equipment, stuff like that. But um, it's primarily it's a rifle hunt, um, and uh, yeah, I, I draw that almost every year. That's another great thing about these animals is the tag is not hard to draw. Right. Yeah. Where, where I hunted in 37, um, I would usually pick up a leftover tag cause I forgot to put in for it. Uh -huh. Um, right. and so I would usually just go pick up a leftover tag, um, you know, from the game and fish office up there in carefree. Uh -huh. Um, and the, the yep. opportunity is near, I don't want to speak out of turn, nearly limitless. You should be able to get a Havelina tag in Arizona every year unless things start to change pretty drastically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the limit is two per year. So while you're, you're going into the draw for one tag, if you you're lucky enough to get a leftover tag as well, you can, you can harvest two animals in, in a single year. Definitely. So, and um, so the archery season happens first, that's typically a longer season. Mm -hmm. And in Correct. January, do you, do you have the regs so we can talk about specifically what this, I don't, I don't have what the this year's dates are. Then generally um, the, the January season's three-ish weeks, I think. Mm -hmm. That sounds about um, right. And that's a, great, that's a great chance to maybe pick up an OTC archery deer tag um, and, and get after some late season deer hunt um, and have that javelina tag in your pocket. 
I've done that a lot of years. That's a good, it's a good time because you can go not kill a coos deer and still come home with a little bit of meat. Um, and so that, that's a great way to do it. Then the ham hunt follows the archery hunt, that's handgun, archery, and muzzleloader. Um, and that, what is that one, 10 days or 15 days? Um, I, I've only hunted the ham hunt once, but I think I hunted it two weekends. I, I don't remember, man. I don't want to misspeak on this stuff. It's shorter than the archery and longer than the general. Yeah, so that, that, that'd be the next opportunity getting into February, and that's a, like a mid-length hunt. And then the general season, I think, is a week long. Yeah. I think that sounds about right, but I, I you know, as much as I, I love hunting them archery, um, our, our, our ham, I, I usually, I usually put in for the general tag just cause I'm always doing it with my boy. We have the same hunt we like to do every year. And, um, then I'll, uh, for those leftovers, unfortunately I was, I was out of the country this year when we put in for leftovers. So I missed out on that opportunity, but, um, I, I have hunted those ham hunts and then those archery hunts as well. Yeah. And for, for the budding traditional archer, Havelina is that. a great yeah. place to cut your teeth. Right, um, they're they're like tailor made for the stick bow hunter, especially the the novice yeah. uh, stick bow yeah. hunter. Hey, well, why don't can you tell us about that hunt you did with Andrew uh, that that paddle trip? And you guys were both uh, hunting with traditional equipment. Well, it was it was intended to be a paddle trip. Um, unfortunately, there was a rain on top of snow event the night before. Well, or potentially, fortunately, the night before we were supposed to launch, um, and the river that we didn't, we weren't really comfortable floating in canoes. Um, we were, I think we were going to make our cutoff like 700 or 750 CFS. Um, it peaked at, I want to say like 67,000 CFS. <laughs> uh, it was, I mean, it was, it was a record book year for flow. Uh, we would have been in really really big trouble had we been on the river um for that hunt so we we opted to go out in um in a pickup truck and do it that way and we uh we hunted deer up high and javelina down low and um just what what a great great experience to be out in january in the desert um we had some clear nights um like caught a full lunar eclipse or lunar eclipse eaten um andrew made uh he made coos deer tacos one night and uh we're leaning leaning back in camp chairs eating homemade tacos made right over the fire and um like we didn't we didn't realize that this lunar eclipse was happening and we just like oh wonderful hit us both kind of at the same time like holy cow what is going on (laughs) um it made us think like what what would it be like to be you know around a thousand years ago before we understood what was going on up right. there and think to yourself yeah. like holy cow there's a full moon holy cow the world's coming to an end i have no idea and i'm sure that very same situation has played out a time or two before yeah yeah um we uh we got into the deer we made a couple of great stocks i i thought andrew was gonna punch his tag he was he and this uh, this buck were on opposite sides of a juniper tree doing the dance, and um, Andrew had to make a choice, 50-50, you know, and the, the deer went the other way. Um, I saw the biggest whitetail standing that I've, I've ever seen and fell apart at like 30 yards, um, just oh. like this. 
I never got like a really great look at the deer. Um, I knew, I knew it was a buck and I knew it was like pretty solid. And, um, we made, we made some long moves in on it. And, um, all of a sudden, you know, I was getting closer and closer and closer and he stepped out in the open. And when I saw him, I have no idea what I did. I don't know if I went into like an involuntary spasm. If I just like (laughs) stood up straight and my jaw hit the desert, I, I have no idea what happened. Like I saw the deer, I screwed up and the deer was gone. And he, I mean, just, just a rock star. Um, so we, we chased deer up high for a couple of days, saw some great sights, spectacular reason to be in country that I've never been in before. Uh, I'd never have a reason to, to be where we were if, uh, if I didn't have a deer tag in my pocket. And, uh, we kind of realized that, you know, our, our time was coming to an end and we weren't seeing any Havelina sign up there. So we headed down back down lower into the desert for, uh, for the last two days. And, um, yeah, we just got into them right away. Um, I punched the tag. We walked that back to camp, cleaned it up, got it in the cooler, got it on ice. And, um, and that was like, that was right after eating breakfast, just walking out of camp. Once again, we didn't see him right we're just like we're we're walking and talking through the desert not even we're just still still making a plan for you know looking at the landscape getting the lay of the land trying to figure out you know do we want to head up this way do we want to stay down that draw do we want to go where that kind of riparian area is where there's no water right now but there must be water sometimes because the sycamore trees are huge like what do we what do we want to go after? And then all of a sudden, like we're standing in a bunch of javelina. Um, I was, I was able to kind of move quick, get around a little hill, a, a little knob, get narrow knocked and um, let one fly. And that was like, that was right after breakfast. So then we go back out the same direction after that javelina is in the cooler and uh, decide we're going to take it a little bit slower this time and maybe, <laughs> maybe survey the landscape a little bit before we go charging in. And um, I don't even think my butt hit the ground and I had Havelina in my binoculars and uh, we were back after him again and um, spent a day chasing them. And they were, they got away from us all the time. And then later that night, as the sun was getting a little bit lower, we spotted, um, spotted a squadron of them on the opposite side of a little Canyon that we were on. And uh, so we made a plan, really good plan. You know, I was going to get up high and keep an eye on them and make sure I was in a spot where I was visible to Andrew. Because I wasn't really worried about them, um, you know, picking up on me, them, you know, being 150 yards away on the other side of this wash. Um, I could probably make some some hand signals and kind of give him some, some guidance from over there. And he was going to go down Canyon get a good wind and then come back up their side of the canyon right into him he made all of the right moves and uh i was watching him creep in there and he's on hands and knees and uh you know it's super exciting to watch he didn't need any help from me it was pretty obvious i think once he got over there you know kind of where they were um and but maybe you couldn't see all of them because he's he was he was in them when he finally decided to to grab an arrow and put it on the string and draw his bow back and i can see like there's javelina kind of on both sides of him already and i and i think i know what he's doing and i, I can see a big what i think is a boar it's a, it's a good sized 
body on on you know one individual and you know thinking to myself that's that's who i would be targeting if i was over there maximize the the meat for my tag um and he sends this arrow just just right over its back and they just erupt all around him and i can i'm just i'm helpless on the other side of the canyon i can't like yell out or you know tell him what to do or or signal him and all and he's he's got another arrow on the string and there's just like just full on like i said javelina circus going on around him and he's he's at half draw he's at three quarter draw then that's not working out there's a javelina behind him and just just total mayhem over there and not a one of them stood still long enough that he was facing for for him to get rid of an arrow and then kind of like um you know one of them figured out where the threat was and kind of struck off and then eventually they all kind of figured it out and followed a single file out of there and, and the opportunity was gone right um but i mean what what fun <laughs> yeah it, when it goes down it can be so exciting oh yeah so exciting yeah yeah they're just like they're just vibrating around you you know oh yeah yeah, those animals, I think I have a lot of energy about them. Um, I had one, and, and this will lead us into another tactic I, I wanted to, to at least touch on. Uh, I was with my, my little boy. It was his first hunt, like big game hunt. That, well, he wasn't hunting. He was with me, and I've been dragging my, my kiddos around all over since they were infants. But um, we, we were out chasing Avelina. And, you know, we were going to do a backpack hunt. But unfortunately, we decided, man, there's no water out there, you know, so maybe we'll just, you know camp near the car and, and do day trips. And, but we had hunted all day long and, and could not find, uh, you know, this squadron of pigs that we knew, knew was around. And, um, finally the, the he was excited to get back cause I promised him mac and cheese. We we're supposed to do javelina mac and cheese and, uh, and camp. And so he was excited to get back to camp. Um, so it's finally getting dark and, and, you know, I, I agree and we start working our way back to camp. So right before dark, um, sure enough like holy cow i i see this javelina up in this canyon uh above me uh, on, on a mountainside um and i can already tell that they saw or smelled me because he's standing rigid hackles up and i could just tell by his body posture that they were onto us i was like oh my god you know we've been going hard all day it's like this is it man uh and it was a great lesson for him that you know and everybody goes through this in their mind you know you're hunting hard for days and days you're not seeing anything but man it can all change just like that mm -hmm. um, so this was a great a great opportunity to, for him to learn about you know putting in the hard work you know putting in the miles and then coming to fruition you know right at the right at the end but um i tell him i'm like all right so we're gonna go up here and I'm, I'm going to hit the predator call um, and they're going to go nuts. So I want you right on my butt the whole time we're going up there. And I was so proud of him because we, we flew up this mountain and he stayed on top of me. And I, I'm hunting with a, my, my preferred javelina uh, gun is a uh, is an old um, Marlin 3030. Or maybe it's with Winchester. I should know my guns better than that. But old 3030 lever action. Sweet. Uh, iron sights. And it's just a fun gun, you know. Cause... Dude, yeah, it's a... It's a great, yeah, traditional archery, iron sight, mm -hmm. um, traditional yeah. muzzle loader. Um, I know, uh, oh, Mike Lopez uh, used to be the Region 1 fisheries lead in Arizona. He is a traditional muzzle loader, canoe hunting, javelina. Mm -hmm. That's nut. awesome. Um, he, he's got that hunt figured out, and that's how he chases them. Yeah, it's fun. Um you know, there's nothing wrong with using a scoped rifle to go after them, but they're such a great a animal to 
offer up opportunity, you know, like, like to do it other ways. But so, yeah, that, that's what I prefer. And, and that's what I take out every year. But um, so anyway, we got up this mountain um, and probably got within 80 yards of these these pigs. And again, they were on to us. The wind was not in our favor, but the, the light was working against us, too. So, you know, we didn't have time to, to really plan this out and, and do it correctly. But we get up there and they're riled up. So I start wailing on that predator call, which I think this was a jackrabbit call. But I think to a javelina, it just sounds like perhaps another javelina or a young javelina in distress. Um, and when they hear I, this. I have used a rabbit call in place of a javelina call. Yeah. And successfully? Yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Same one. I've never owned a javelina call. I've always just used a, a jackrabbit. But um, the, the trick of those, you don't just go out and start wailing on a call and, you know, and have javelina come in. I mean, I guess it's possible, but odds are against you. Um, you got to find them and get close to them. Um, and once you're relatively close and you start wailing on that call, boy, they go crazy. And I mean, they go so crazy. They can come like running up and not, like almost knock you over. That's why I told my little boy, stay so close to me. Um, you know, and they're, they're chomping those tusks and they're just all riled up. Um, and, uh, so it was such an exciting hunt for him. And, and, you know, we have one come out, you know, come close, all hackled up and, 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 uh, and we shot it and, uh, and, and, and brought it home, but, but it's so exciting, you know, and it's a great also this year, he and I will have tags. And I can't say that I've really ever been in a situation where I took a javelina and didn't have, you know, other opportunities to take more animals in the same instance. Because it's not like deer. Oh, where you shoot one and they just they're out of the country. They have to mill around and figure out what the hell's going on first, you know? Absolutely. So you usually have several opportunities. Yeah. So how old is your little girl now? Eleanor is six now. Um, so she soon to be seven. And um, we didn't get a lot of opportunity to hunt together this year. We got a really early winter. Um, she's not quite ready to come out for archery season. Um just for a couple of reasons. Um, one that I like to keep her pretty close due to the nature of the, the predator populations, um, especially when, when chasing big game in the mountains. And we got a really early winter this year. So last year we did some mule deer hunting together, um, which was an absolute blast. Whatever you guys do, don't leave your kids at home if you have an opportunity to take them with you. Um, no. I did. I did a whole podcast on that very subject. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that opportunity is going to go down. Success rates are going to go down, but um, man, so I brought a sleeping bag. I told her, you know, we don't do like a lot of sugar or candy or any of that stuff. And we went to the gas station and I said, Eleanor, you get whatever snacks you want to get. Like the, the, the brains are off. Um, pick out like three things, whatever you want. She ate so much candy corn and, and <laughs> sugared up gummy worms that weekend um but we had i mean we had like the dolls out we had a sleeping bag and she was just playing dolls in the sleeping bag and i was doing some glassing she went on some long stalks with me just like a total trooper um you know that that particular weekend i didn't punch a tag but my buddy aaron did and she came with me. We made a, a long walk in to where he was, helped him finish quartering, load up packs. Yeah. And, um, and then she made the, the walk in and the walk out with us. Oh, perfect. Um, and she's so, um, she's so conscientious of the gravity of it um, that I just wasn't aware of when I was that old. Um, but she understands, it's amazing. She understands, you know, where her food comes from. 
and how valuable and important wildlife and she, she's so caring um and she loves you know she loves all animals uh but she also understands that you know that's you know where where our food comes from and she's got this ability of like grasping sorrow and gratitude at the same time that I don't think I understood until I was 30. Um, and you know, she, she had this concept at four, um, which just, it just blows me away sharing these experiences with her. Uh, I was, I took a, a bobcat, uh, just the other day, um, down in, in Mern's country. And, uh, I, I'm extremely excited about it. Um, I've never gotten to eat one. Um, I hear they're delicious. I have had the fortune to eat, good fortune to eat mountain lion, and that was great. Me too. I haven't had bobcat though. Yeah, I'm excited about it, man. And you know, I it was great because it was you know I, I've seen them before and like bordering uh, the city and stuff like that, and I've like eh, I've always passed on those because it's like I'm afraid they're going to be full of rodenticides and things like that. But this one was like in in some legit country, you know. I'm sure it's eaten more mern quail than than I have. But uh, it's a beautiful cat, um, and the meat is just—I mean, it's—it's it's just really clean and nice looking. There's no no different odors. In fact, the cat didn't even have an odor. Um, it's just just a really clean, beautiful, healthy animal. Um, but so I'm really excited about cooking that up. But uh, my seven-year-old daughter, um, she is a cat person, so she was a little unsure about this one. She she told me she's going to eat it, and I would never put pressure on her to do do stuff like that. But my kids have grown up eating all manner of strange things you know they they fight over squirrel hearts and livers for sure but um uh but yeah she she was a little little taken aback by the fact that i shot a cat and, and not, i'm gonna be honest with you man when i shot it and walked up on it and saw that face i was like oh shit that looks just like puddles back home you know uh which uh yeah, yeah. so yeah we, we do have these you know emotional connections to some animals and when we don't others but um but my kids are pretty good at being practical you know it's like I, they they realize that you know well you just got done eating a cow right there, you know, but, but yeah, if you're going to struggle with this, you got to think about why, you know, um, and they're, they're pretty good about that. And I'm proud of them because of that, but. Right. I am too. What well, it's like, a, I don't know. It's, it's like, I always fall back on what Aldo Leopold wrote down that, you know, the, the greatest spiritual danger of not growing up on a farm is, or the two greatest spiritual dangers are, are supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery store and that heat comes from the register. And I really strive for Eleanor to understand that it's it's much more than just what comes you know out of the shopping basket and and out of the register, but we you know so we grow a garden and we raise bees and we raise chickens, um, you know and we you know for for the most part, um, besides fowl, almost all of the meat in our house is you know sourced from from the mountains or the plains, um, and I'm I'm really proud that she takes. Um, she takes to it so well. And like, you know, at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers rendezvous, she was there with me and this guy, Barry Whitehill comes down from Alaska with all manner of just strange meats in a cooler. And Eleanor had, was that the last, was that the two years ago? Um, he, Barry's usually there, but yeah, two years ago, Eleanor got to have, yeah, I remember there was grizzly bear, muskox, yeah, all kinds um, of stuff. whale, whale blubber, grizzly bear, muskox. She's had rattlesnake. Um, she's had mountain lion, um, coyote, wolf. So she's gotten to try, you know, almost everything out there. And she's such a trooper when it comes to food. I mean, yeah. the kid likes Brussels yeah. sprouts. If, if you gave her a vegetable right, option, she'd too. pick Brussels sprouts. Um, so I don't know. I'm just super proud. Um, 
that she's got such a great understanding and appreciation for, you know, what nourishes her yeah. body. And I, I'm in the same boat and I'm super proud of my kids too. It's really nice to hear that. But, you know, with that said, we're, we're over an hour and we, I really want to talk about field care and cooking of javelina, that last misconception. Um, so let's jump into that. Yeah. yeah I, th I think that's the biggest danger with perception is that they have a scent gland, so they're not going to be good. And if taken care of in the field, it's a really mild, um, like, I, I, I've been thinking about this since you said you wanted to do the podcast, and I can't really put, like, a finger on what javelina tastes like. It's very, very bland and mild and just kind of like a, like a standard protein, I would say. Yeah. What are your thoughts? I would throw in a slight sweetness, maybe, and maybe I'm making that up. Okay. I don't know, but I, I would still akin it to pork, just not that fatty, you know, domestic pork we're used to. Yeah, it's it's like a pork without all the intramuscular. Um, because I mean, when, when you braise it and shred it, it's still like a pulled pork. Yeah, it's um, and and I, you know, a lot of times pork doesn't have a whole whole lot of its own flavor to it. Yeah. Um, until we start adding salt and seasoning to it, and I think I think you're right there. It's like a super, super duper lean pork product. You know, one of my greatest regrets is I killed one javelina that was super fatty, full of fat, and I did not keep that fat and render it. Um, and I'm ashamed of myself because I bet it's delicious. That would have made great sausage too, even if you didn't render the fat. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, with that, I, I've not, I know you've made some chorizo um, that I've eaten and it was absolutely mm -hmm. outstanding, but I, I've killed a lot of javelinas and I have not made snack sticks or chorizo out of one of them. And a lot of hunters, unfortunately, feel like that's the only thing they're good for. No, I, I, I would disagree with that. I would say they make great sausage. Um, and, for for me, I like we do consume a lot of sausage, so um, it's it's a great option for that, especially if you are timid um, and you have any reservations about it. I think sausage is a great option. Um, and then the other place that I like it is in just like traditional slow cook dishes. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know I don't know if it's because it comes from the Southwest, so I just tend yeah. to like just group it in with all of the traditional Southwest foods, but right. dude, a green chili and potato javelina stew. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. And, um, and don't, don't feel bad about adding some fat into that to thicken that up. Cause it is super duper lean. Yeah, I always do. Um, so, so supplement some fat in there, but anything slow cooker, right? man, I love it. Well, let's, let's start with the, the field care, um, and the breaking an animal down. Um, one of the nice things I think about javelina are they're small enough. Uh, I'll usually gut them on site and, uh, I'll, I'll keep the heart. I've not kept the liver yet, but I'm kind of curious. So what like a javelina pate might be like, but I haven't went down that road, but I'll, I'll gut that animal and then I'll just pack it out whole. It fits nicely in a normal size cooler. And then you can take it home and take your time and, and be careful with the processing. At least that's how I do it. Definitely. I think, um, so when, so if you're gutting right away, are you skinning right away as well? No, nope. Again, I'm taking the entire animal out, um, just minus the guts. Like I said, you can put it in a cooler, put a jug of frozen ice, you know, in, inside the cavity, and it does really well. Um, and then even if I get home at night, 
it can stay in that cooler all night long. Um, and then I'll hang it up in a tree in the backyard. Um, and I can just take my time, you know, like, like we did it with deer back East, um, you know, in most cases hunting in, in this Western landscape, especially with elk and, and deer, you're, you're parting that animal out into quarters, um, and packing it out piece by piece. But with javelina, you can take the whole thing out. So I just find it easiest to do that way. Now, if I was at camp for a few days or something, that might be different, but, um, that's typically my go-to. Okay. I like to be able to hang an animal up and really take my time and be careful with the knife work. I, I agree with that a hundred, 110%. Um, anytime I have the opportunity to get an animal out whole or, or get the pieces out as whole as possible and then take my time with them. Um, that's, that's always the best option. Um, you know, in, in a backpacking, um, or a mountain situation, that's usually not the case. Um, but I, I agree with Havelina. That's definitely an option. And I would say my, my focus is, um, just cause it's so warm and it's, I mean, even in January or February, depending on where you're hunting and what the weather decides to do in Arizona, it could be in the eighties or nineties. Um, so my, my goal is to get the guts out, to get the hide off and to get the meat cool as fast as possible. What, what's your method for skinning? and handling around the scent glands. All right. So yeah, to, to, to lay the groundwork, um, you know, Havelina have this reputation of not being good to eat, uh, largely in part because they have a slight skunky odor to them. Honestly, I don't find it that unpleasant, but uh, they do have a little bit of a skunky odor. And that, that is primarily coming from, they have a, a gland on their lower back that looks basically like a nipple. Um, but it's only on the skin. Now, I think where people go wrong is they are you you know not being clean and meticulous about how they go about skinning an animal. So you know if I when I go through and I make those initial cuts in the skin, I'm going to go through. I'm going to wipe my knife off, or maybe even use another knife. You know, whenever I start cutting around meat. But yeah, you just take a little bit of precaution. You don't even have to be very careful. You know, a little bit of precaution is all you need when you're skinning that animal out to not be rubbing hair um, on the meat. Is what it comes down to. Um, but yeah, I, I like to hang mine up, uh, from, from the, the you know, their, their rear hawks and, and just kind of skin them down like that. And that, that sink land, it just comes right off with the skin. It's not an issue. And just, again, be careful about, you know, what knife you're using for what, cause you don't want to rub any of that scent onto the meat. And in my opinion, my guess, my hypothesis is that where is where all of the trouble comes from. I, I think so too. So I, I would always take it to kind of another level, just like hyper precautionary i suppose and um depending on the situation i'll carry a fixed blade or a folding or like a replaceable blade havilon type knife with havelina i really like the replaceable blade havilon type knife and what what i do is i will put on a pair of gloves and with one blade i'll gut the animal out and i hang it from the neck in a tree so that I'm working as far away from that scent gland and then towards the scent gland. Um, and so I'll start at the neck and skin down towards the hindquarters, being very careful through the whole skinning process. Um, and then when you get to that scent gland, you know, my move is just when you get there in the hide is just to make sure I've got plenty of clearance underneath that thing as as i get back to where the tails would be on any other animal um and then i just get rid of the hide 
and I take my gloves off and either put a, put a clean pair on or work without gloves at that point in time, depending on what the situation dictates. And I take that blade off of that knife and put a clean one on or use a separate fixed blade, depending on you know where I am and, and what I'm carrying and how far from the truck I am. Um, yeah. And then work work the rest of whatever I'm gonna work at that time with a clean with clean hands and a clean knife, or I'm gonna put a bag of ice inside the body cavity and toss it in a cooler. Yep. Yep. That seems re- reasonable to me. Um, and I've never I've never had a bad table experience taking those precautions. And I and I don't think that it's really a whole bunch of extra work or um you know, overly burdensome or anything. Um, no, not at all. Just kind of change what steps you're doing when, and um, just clean hands, clean knife after the skins, after the hides yeah. out of the way. Yeah. Once you skin that animal out and you part it out, you know, and into your different pieces, it's not like you're going to unwrap a piece of meat that thawed from the freezer and it doesn't smell like javelina. It doesn't smell like anything. No. No, it's a it's a really easy to handle whole carcass that you can now do whatever you want with. It's like a little little gift from the desert. Yes, it is. Um, all right. So with that, let's see. Typically, what I'll do. Um, well, I used to when I bring them home, I would uh, take the back straps out. I would cut those back straps up, and then I would uh, like put them under like some cellophane, and I would pound them out and in, into chunks. And then I would flour them and I'd fry them up for all the neighborhood kids. Oh, I know where you're going with this. Uh, so we'd, we'd have javelina nuggets. Oh, that sounds, I've never done that, but um, yeah, that sounds excellent. Yeah. Everybody, everybody agreed. I would always agree they're better than chicken nuggets, but um, for sure. So that, that's a pretty easy thing to do. I, I have heard, I don't want to advise people on this, but I have heard javelina uh, via Hank Shaw um, is completely vegetarian um, and therefore does not carry trichinosis. So if you ever wanted to try a medium rare piece of pork, this is your opportunity to do that. I've not done it. I usually cook mine, but, but I hear, I hear it's safe to do, you know, I have not heard yeah. that. I've heard that they're omnivorous, um, and to always just for, and that's why I've always gone slow cooker, yeah. um, and like traditional pulled, um, oh man, right. like any slow cooked, recipe that you have that ends up in a tortilla right you can't go wrong um but i've i've always been careful to cook cook thoroughly um, I, I always have to due to the discussion around trichinosis yeah. um and for folks that, that don't know trichinosis is a uh parasite that uh gets past uh, predators carry it so you know they say any bear out there over three years old is going to have trichinosis so you have to cook your meat i think it's like 160 165 to be safe 160 or 165 yeah yeah to make sure you're killing that parasite um which would really suck for you know a, a nice steak or something um but uh, so, yeah, you know, let's just say verdicts out on that. Um, I, I personally have trouble seeing a javelina passing up a nest of eggs or, or some carrion or something, you know, but but I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. And I've seen them carrying around like a deer. Oh, leg. really? <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure that they're not taking down a deer, but they're interested in whatever's left over on the ground or can be. I, I killed a couple feral pigs back in the Ozarks that uh, well, while I was hunting them. Um, I came across a, a, a spot where the, there was a fawn just ripped to pieces by pigs. I mean, they, they, they ate the hair and everything. It was crazy. 
Oh yeah. I've, um, I've helped buddies, um, raise hogs and, um, and lambs. And if there's ever like a stillborn lamb that goes to the nursing sows, um, and it's, uh, it's a very quick process. Yep. Well, and like you said, um, and there's nothing left. Yeah. Those, uh, the, the neck, the front quarters, um, shanks for me, those are all going to be done into some kind of, um, green chili, um, a pea beal, um, uh, you know, just, just braised and bone stock and shredded potato Yeah. Yeah. All of those kinds of recipes. Dude, and I'm, I'm, I'm with hungry. you, man. I always go Southwest with javelina just cause it feels right. Um, yeah. The association is just there for me to do that. Yep. Yep. Um, and the, I mean, I, I mean, if you get into it deep, you know, and you go down through Mexico and, and central and South America, there's all kinds of cool recipes, you know, that you can get into and do with these animals. But, you know, the back straps I'll usually do on the grill, something like that, um, or like I said, make nuggets earlier. But then those two back hams, um, it's it's a perfect Easter ham because you're getting in February. You have plenty of time to prep and, and do it and uh, make a really nice javelina ham for Easter. Oh, man, I've never done that, but that sounds great. Good yeah, on you for, for putting in the effort there. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's an ideal ideal situation. But that that's my primary breakdown in how I treat those pieces of meat, um, kind of the same way I do with a – deer or most other large animals you know those different quarters uh you know lend themselves to different applications better but you know neck meat is probably some of the best taco meat in the world followed closely behind by by those shoulders and, and shanks you know yeah. all, all that connective tissue breaking down you know and getting all glossy and slippery is just amazing the best yeah oh, that's what makes all the, that makes all that food so good you just get into those all that extra stuff that's not the meat yeah, all the flavor yep. that comes out of it, all of the the liquid and mm-hmm. oh, it takes time and low heat. I love it to bring all, all that it. out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, honestly, I mean, I'll just reiterate: like for those who don't have the time to spend doing that in the kitchen, because you've got two or three kids, and and you you know you're both have full time jobs and you're racing around. Um, take take a Sunday and grind up some chorizo or breakfast sausage or Italian sausage and. Um, you know, it's, it's great that way too, just as, as a, a protein in a bulk sausage. Um, I didn't have any javelina, but some, some buddies, uh, Andrew included, um, we all had a, we just had a big sausage party a couple of weeks ago and cleaned out our freezers. And we ended up grinding up 110 pounds between three hunters, um, and some added pork, bratwurst and bulk Italian, cased Italian, and a bunch of chorizo um, from elk, mule deer, white-tailed deer, roadkill deer. Um, I, I got some locally raised fat back from a, a pig farm around here in the valley, and just just incredible. And for like so for us, you know, in the afternoon I can just brown up some Italian sausage, toss a jar of ragu in there, boil some noodles, and there's literally a, a 20 minute home cooked meal after, after work, after school, um, and everybody's fed and happy, man. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. I I can't wait. Um, yeah, Uh, it'd be nice to have you back for a Halloween hunt sometime, man. We should do it. Well, Andrew and I have been talking, we got to make a trip back down there and make good on the the river trip that never happened. Yeah. That'd be a fun one. Yeah. And I, I do need to, I, I never have floated that river. Um, 
and uh that was the one like kind of big plan to do it and we've been talking about it more and more sure. maybe inflatable kayaks or pack rafts yeah. instead of canoes um and that way we can kind of pull out at a different point if we want to and find right. a way to hitchhike out of the desert yeah. or uh <laughs> radio in for a ride or something but that that draw is there for me for sure that's an adventure that needs to, needs to be completed nice well it'd be nice to have you back for a bit definitely man i got to make a trip down I think I think we've covered the basics. I'm sure we left some stuff out, but but at the least, I really hope that we we inspired uh, some folks that maybe otherwise weren't thinking about getting out after these amazing animals. Um, and I really hope we changed mind of people who have been part of the rumor mill uh, regarding you know the the edibility of these animals because that that is something that just couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah, definitely fit for the table. Definitely a lot of fun. Um, just I, I think the whole thing they're just kind of underrated you know they are challenging and at the same time it can be really easy um but no matter what it's going to be a bunch of fun and um and you're going to get a little nugget of meat that's going to be you know great to feed your family that's awesome man well dj man it has been great catching up with you definitely and you know, thank you for all of the uh, the conservation work you do and your time volunteering, and and thank you for raising up a another little uh, you know wildlife and wilderness warrior. You know, we need as many as we can get. I I think so. I mean, I think the next generation is like the the most important thing. So raising the load up pack mules and take long hikes and be appreciative of uh, where their food comes from and the views and clean air and water. And, uh, and, you know, maybe we'll come out of this thing all right. Right on, man. Well, if I, uh, if I make it out to Montana this March, uh, maybe I'll see you at Rendezvous. And, and if I can't make it, yeah, hopefully I'll catch up with you back down here sometime. Yeah, I recommend it, man. Come on up here in March. I hope to see you at Rendezvous. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll catch up some more then. All right, buddy. Well, thanks again. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk. Yeah, we lost a good one uh, when we lost DJ to Montana. Uh, with that said, though, these are the United States of America, and he's still out there doing good conservation work on behalf of wildlife and wild places, um, and I, I commend him for that. Uh, yeah, Havelina, they're one of the most misunderstood game animals we hunt. Um, I find them absolutely fascinating, absolutely delicious. Uh, in all applications. Um, and, you know, all those misconceptions that, that we talked about, misunderstandings, uh, I'm not going to lie, they drive me a little crazy. But, you know, uh, trying to get the word out like this, I hope that helps because these are just fantastic animals. I think one of the most interesting animals running around on hooves uh, here here on in North America. Uh, if you haven't been out after them, I highly encourage it. Um, they're, they're just so much fun to hunt. Just so much fun. I, I cannot wait for this next season. So, yeah, I hope that inspired you. Um, you know, and, and I hope if you're already an avid javelina hunter, I hope you I hope you picked up something new there or at least enjoy the conversation. I know I did. Um, again, this podcast is made possible by the Arizona Wildlife Federation and uh, an organization that I am very proud to work for. We are going to be 100 years old this coming year. Aldo Leopold called our first meeting into order. If that doesn't fill you full of shock and awe, I don't know what else to do. Um, it certainly does me, uh, and I think it's just exciting. 100 years of conservation here in the state. Great organization. Please consider supporting us. Uh, please consider 
uh, giving us a, a rating or review on the podcast. If you're enjoying it, that's helpful. And don't hesitate to reach out to me at podcast at azwildlife.org. Give me your suggestions. Um, and I will say that this Havelina podcast came as one of those suggestions. So I appreciate it. I love hearing your comments, uh, your criticisms, your critiques, um, and just chatting. So don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks so much. We'll see you again in two weeks. Mm-hmm.